But today, um, man, I <laughs> when you get to the end of a book, okay, we're preaching through Matthew, right? We're going through Matthew, and by the time you get to the end, you really get a sense of the themes, like the favorite themes, the, the things that keep smacking the face over and over and over again. And as I, as I got to this passage, I thought, wow, we've, we've, t- we've visited this, we've talked about this. Um, I don't want any of you to think, wow, Lucas just keeps talking about this. What does he think? We're a bunch of like hypocrites or something? No, but Matthew keeps talking about it. And I think it's an issue that um, if we're not careful, it's like an infectious disease that just sneaks in unnoticed. And then one day you wake up and realize you're, you're not living the way that Jesus wants you to live. I listened to a debate yesterday online. I mean, a friendly debate. It was between two uh, youth pastor guys. And they do all this research and all these stats to try to figure out why is it that, especially of late, youth graduate high school and leave the church and never come back. What, what is going on? And one of them thought it's because of all the youth groups and youth pastors. Uh, they, they, they're too cool. They, they have pizza and music and games and paintball, but there's not the word. And so it's the youth pastor's fault. And then the other guy will say, well, it's not the youth group's fault. It's that, you know, a lot of these kids don't have parents at home. And they were going back and forth. And I think both sides raised some really good points. But I think teens more than anything, are, are searching for authenticity. Um, this is why they start shedding their parents' uh, identity. Um, it's not cool if you drop them off at the mall. You've got to drop them off somewhere else and let them walk to the mall because if their kids see their parents, it's not cool. They don't want you to join them for dinner. They don't want you to take them bowling. They want you to just drop them off a block away so that they can bowl. And um, they, they're, they're craft, they're looking for identity. And while they're doing that, uh, they're very keen. Uh, we all were, right? You remember back to when you were a teen. You're very keen to what's authentic and what's inauthentic. And I think the greatest thing hurting the youth today is parents that are one way in church and a different way at home. And when we think about that, we, we, it's easy for us to think about the person who's hallelujah in church and then beating his wife at home. Well, that's a, an extreme. But that's not all it takes, is it? That's not all it takes. You could be smiling in church and then depressed at home. Um, you could be very cordial with people at church and just don't talk to your kids a lot at home. I mean, it, there, there's a lot of lower tier stuff that still is destructive and still is not what Jesus is after. So it's no doubt that Jesus would rail against hypocrisy because it's the number one thing that hurts kids. It's the number one thing that hurts the church's witness. And it's the biggest trump card that any atheist will throw at you. If Jesus is real, why don't you guys live like it? Now that's a tough one to combat. It's a tough one to answer. So in this passage, Jesus focuses his attention on the religious leaders but his he's not talking to the religious leaders at first he's talking to the people about the religious leaders don't be like them don't be like that so we don't want to become like the people that jesus railed against so we're going to be in matthew chapter 23 matthew chapter 23 
And um, we're eating this entire chapter today for breakfast, all right? Okay, the entire chapter. Um, and just as a, as a preface, when I read through this chapter, guys, he goes after the Pharisees and the Pharisees' religious leaders, right? They were religious leaders. My first thought when I'm preparing this and studying this passage, I don't close my eyes and look out at CFCers. My first thought is me. Because I think the people in the church that are most in danger of this brand of hypocrisy, we're all hypocrites, we all mess up, but the brand of hypocrisy where you have a high knowledge of what to do and then a very low level of doing those things that you're supposed to do, um, I think comes with those of us who know more. Pharisees were very knowledgeable. And uh, they were teachers. And I find myself asking the Lord to forgive me. And I find myself thankful that you all sit there and listen to me. Um, I'm not perfect. This is very convicting. Now, those of us who know more have a greater responsibility, right? But verse uh, 1 starts with Jesus saying to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they're in charge. They're the ones that convey what the Lord wants to say to you. Interestingly, though, verse 3 says, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. He doesn't say, bag those guys, man. Just forget it. Just do whatever you want. No, because they're telling you the truth. Just don't do what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. You ever click on a TV preacher who's telling the poor people who could barely afford to watch the station that he's on to give till it hurts? And you just wonder if he's doing that? Just a thought. It's easy for preachers to preach. Verse 5, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at, at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Jesus is just railing. He's got... He's got a list of the kind of things that they do. They wear these leather boxes. They called phylacteries. They would wear them. And you know, in Deuteronomy six, it says uh, you will take this law and you will wear it, bind it to your foreheads and your hands. And so they had these boxes, and they would have little scrolls in them with scripture. Um, okay, so they took that very literally. But then, but then they wanted to be a little more prominent, so they make a little bit of a bigger box with more scripture or bigger font um, wear it oh I cover it with my sleeve but it's all bulky underneath the sleeve you could tell there's a phylactery under you know oh I cover it with my hair but it's a huge box it's like this you know like hi I'm a Pharisee it's they just wanted to be in your face with it and their tassels were long they were supposed to wear tassels that would remind them of of the Torah and to keep the law 
and, and they would take it to their seamstress and say, just make it, make it two feet long. And the other guy would top that and say, make mine three feet long. The tassels are dragging, and they're just like these huge flowing things, and that was never really the point. They would go into the marketplaces, and they would love being called rabbi. They loved the titles, you know? And people would see them with these big boxes on their heads and these long flowing tassels flowing around. And, and they say, oh, there's rabbi so-and-so. There's doctor so-and-so. He's the man. And they loved it. They loved the place of honor at feasts. Man, I don't know if this is bad to bring up. I just, I, sometimes I'll pull up into a church and it's like pastor spot, you know, elder spots. And they're the best spots. I, I guess I get it if they're running late or something. I mean, I got the best spot. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I don't know. It just makes me, it makes me think. We want to honor our pastors, I'm sure. But it's just so easy for those of us who have authority in the church to really enjoy the honor that can come with knowledge. I do worry sometimes. I love it when people tell me, oh, I listened on Moody Radio and I heard this preacher. Oh, I read this book. I love hearing that. I do wince a little bit when it's like, oh, I love everything that guy writes. Anything he writes is dripping with awesomeness. That guy is so awesome. I have that guy's t-shirt. Okay, maybe that last one's a little exaggerated, but not that exaggerated. We want to learn from preachers, but we have to be careful with the celebrity thing. He says, verse 8, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I don't want to sit and nitpick this part. I don't know for sure that Jesus is saying you can't call a professor a professor. You can't call um, someone who has a, a, a doctor at a doctor, or you go to the whatever. You can't call people pastor. Um, it's this demanding. It's this title. It's when it's on the door. It's when it's on the sign. Reverend, the holy reverend, apostle, so-and-so. You know, like these lofty titles. It's demanding that you be called that title. Um, I don't know, medical doctors do it all the time. I'll say, Mr. Smith? Dr. Smith. Okay, dude. You know, relax. We're not at the hospital. But it's this, I earned that badge, and you're going to give it to me. And they were very much like that. Um, Jesus is saying, you know, disciples, as you guys start the church and get this going, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Graduating into roles and becoming elders and deacons and then telling everybody, you will call me deacon so-and-so or elder so-and-so or pastor so-and-so. Um, don't do that. Because that's against the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted you remember when he said we've got to become like children and he brought children to him he said, we have to become like that if we're going to be great if you're going to be great you have to become like that what's so great about a child they can't do anything that they're they're disrespected in this society i mean they were just the least 
Because you have to become a servant. Verse 13, he begins a string of woes. Uh, Woe is like an affliction, you know. He's like, uh, affliction is going to come upon you. Judgment. You will be judged for these things. And he's got seven of them. He lays seven woes on the Pharisees for them. And now, he turns his attention from the crowds to the Pharisees. And... um, Some scholars have thought that maybe the Pharisees had left by this point. But maybe they're still there. Maybe they're within earshot, off in a corner, trying to plot their next way to kill him. In verse 13, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You guys, you guys, you guys miss what everything is about. Everything is about me, Jesus, and you guys miss it. And by rejecting me, you shut yourself out of the kingdom. And by leading other people to reject me, you shut them out of the kingdom. You go, where does that in the text? Well, it's because this flows out of all the paragraphs we were just in about the crowds honoring Jesus as Lord and laying palm branches before him and saying, shouting Hosanna and saying, he's the one. And they're saying, no, he's not the one. And then he clears the temple and they're, who are you to clean the temple? And so the debate is about him being the Christ. And they reject that. And so they shut the door. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a convert, someone who wants to convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, when that person you travel to go see does convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. I mean, make no mistake, this isn't about you get a slap on the wrist, you know. Oh, you were supposed to teach the word better, but you kind of led people astray. Shame on you. You get a smaller mansion in heaven. Hell! As I mentioned before, we learn more about hell from Jesus than anyone else. And it's interesting that um, most of the time when Jesus talks about hell, he doesn't have in mind prostitutes and gangbangers. He has in mind people that are in church that are acting, you know, trying to talk the talk and walk the walk, and they're not the real deal. More so for those who are teachers and lead people astray into their hypocrisy. It will not end well. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. So the temple was a place of worship. It was where God's dwelling place, so to speak, was, right? The sacred space and the things that were in the temple were precious. And they would say, don't swear by the temple. If you do swear by the temple, in other words, I will be there tomorrow. I swear. By the temple, I swear. You know, now we've got dumb stuff. Like, oh, my mother's grave, or cross my eye and stab my heart, or I don't know, whatever. You know, the stupid oaths that we do. But they would say, by the temple. By the temple. And they say, well, if you say by the temple, then the oath doesn't really have to stick. You can get away with it. Don't worry about it. But if you swear by the gold that's in the temple, and scholars debate why that was. Some people think it was quantifiable. If you swear by the gold in the temple, you don't do it, then you owe something. Or maybe because it was the things that were collected 
um, and conquest or whatever that was in the temple. There was all kinds of theories as to what it means. But Jesus explains why it's completely ridiculous. He says, verse 17, You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, see, something quantifiable, something you can measure, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In other words, things aren't holy. If anything is holy, if anything is special, it's because God makes it so. Uh, I remember sitting, <laughs> I invited a guy to come speak at my college group that I helped found at a church in New Jersey. And um, the guest speaker came and kind of looks at me and we have chairs in a circle, you know. It was just a room. And he, he looks at me and he goes, well, where do I put my Bible? I said, oh, usually what I do is I take my Bible and my notes and I just slip it under the chair and on the floor. He goes, I don't put the Holy Word of God on the floor. And just had this real, I don't know, like he just lashed me for the concept of putting the Bible on the floor. And then I wanted to tell him, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize you worshipped the pages and the duotone pleather that binds the pages. I mean, to elevate the Word of God, okay, is this holy? If it says Holy Bible, it's holy in a derivative sense. It's holy because the God who spoke the words make it holy. But ironically, the guy kind of snapping at me like that breaks the very law that he wants to keep off the floor. It's interesting when churches find it very easy to have an entire membership meeting derailed over some furniture in a church or parking lot or grass or chairs or banners or lights, right? It's very easy to become focused on that. Why? Those things matter. And Jesus didn't say, forget the altar. Forget the gold that's in the altar. None of that stuff matters. No, it's holy. It's holy, but it's holy because God is holy. It's holy because the temple is holy. And so when we do talk about Furniture, carpet, grass, landscaping, snow removal. Those are important things. We should talk about them in our membership meetings. But why are those things important? They're important because our mission as a church is important. And the God that we serve is holy. And so, it was easy for them to focus on things that were easy to focus on gold or altars or things that you can swear by, things that you can measure, things that you can quantify and count. Verse 23, says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Um, the tithe, when we think of tithe, we think of a check. You know, we get a check and then we cut a portion of the check and then we debate back and forth whether it's a net or is it gross, right? 
But for them, it was actual commodities. You know, the, the, the crops that came in and you would take a tenth and, and tithe it so that the Levites had something to eat. And uh, he tells them, you tithe even the smallest things, mint, and dill, and cumin, spices, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He's not saying don't tithe. He's not saying stop tithing. It's just a small thing. Who cares about that? No, he cares about that. And if they didn't do it, he would have gone on them on that too. But it's just that they were so focused on the little measurable things, the little compartments that they had, the little checklist that they had, they would walk right by a beat up person on the street to make sure that they brought the little bag of dill into the temple. They're tithing, but they're not feeding someone who's starving because they're not caring about justice or mercy. And they're not being faithful to the spirit of the law. So he uses this phrase, this metaphor, you blind guys, you, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. They would use these cloth swaths to uh, take their jugs and while it's sitting out there, the wine is sitting out, the little gnats come and lap in it and then they fall in there and you know, after a while the stuff is sitting out there and they have gnats in their wine. You know? They go to pour it out and they pour it through something that they're straining. He's like, you're getting all the gnats out? That's great. Nobody wants to drink gnats. How's that camel? You know? Uh, the, the big things that you're missing, the big obvious things that you're not paying attention to while you nitpick about little things. Little things become great and great things become little in hypocrisy. Verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Now, is he talking about how to do dishes here? No. He's saying, you guys, work on your appearance. You work on your appearance, but inside you're messed up. See, this is what, this is what kids see through easy. This is what spouses can see through easy. This is what newcomers, they come in the church, what they can see through easily. A nice, cleaned up exterior. You spend 15 minutes ironing your shirt and your pants so that you're not wrinkled, you don't want to disrespect the house of the Lord, you're going to come and worship. But you don't spend any time talking with your kids or your spouse or asking how they slept or how they're doing today or... It's a, it's a sign of hypocrisy. If we're more focused on it, it, should we all just come in dressed backwards and crazy? No. It's good to dress nice. But not if we focus on those nitpicky things and that we neglect the weightier things. He says they're like plates that have, or cups that have been cleaned only on the outside. Verse 27 gets worse. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Um, what is a whitewashed tomb? They wouldn't go out there with uh, pressure washers and like sandblast their, you know, 
their tombs. Um, but when people were coming to, these, uh, to the temple and gathering from all different parts of the nation, uh, you wanted to make sure you didn't actually accidentally brush up against the tomb or you're wandering and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm in a cemetery or, you know, um, everything wasn't always neatly fenced off. And so they would use plaster and cover these tombs and make them bright white so you can see, that's a tomb, don't touch that. Um, but they would make them ornamental and they would make sure the plaster was nice and they would spend time on that. And he's saying the irony of that, all the time spent on the outside for something that just houses death and uncleanness, is the irony of a, of a person who's religious on the outside, knows a lot of Scripture, talks Christianese, but inside is dead. Inside is dead. He says they're hypocrites. They're blind. Verse 29. Last one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So they're saying, yeah, our ancestors killed the prophets that were sent to them. We wouldn't have done that. Those guys were idiots. We wouldn't have done that. And as penance for that, we're going to make their tombs awesome. We're going to decorate their tombs and put ornaments on their tombs and carve stuff into their tombs to honor those prophets. That's real funny because John is dead and you're about to kill me. He tells them, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus is basically saying, You admit that those are your fathers that did that? Apple don't fall far from the tree, is what he's saying. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. In other words, go ahead and finish what they started. You're going to. He's saying, You're going to kill me. You reject me. You rejected John. You're rejecting me. You serpents. You brood of vipers. Now, who's the serpent? I mean, when you think serpent, these guys studied Genesis. They're probably wearing Genesis in one of their phylacteries. You're a serpent. You're a brood of them. At least Eve just did one of them. You're like a brood of vipers, serpents, poisonous, forked tongues, liars. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of you, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. All you have to do is read the book of Acts and see what happens to these disciples that Jesus grabbed. See what happens to them. Read church history. Find out how they were killed. He says all that blood will be on your head because you're supposed to know and recognize that they're true and you kill them instead. So he goes through these woes and he comes up with examples of how they're hypocrites and i don't know any of them started that way i don't know if any of them 
started that way when they were kids, you know, like, I want to grow up and just be the fakest person ever. I just love being fake. It doesn't start that way. It just ends up that way somehow. They stop paying attention to what the law is pointing to, and they get caught up in what the law does for them socially and the culture that we can build around a law. And um, it's not very hard to see how that can apply to churches today. I mean, neglecting the weightier matters for smaller issues. Um, Today we have a very uh, consumerist mindset, I think, when it comes to churches. We... A lot of people just find it easy to hop from one church to the next and, you know, as soon as something bothers them or ruffles them their feathers and rubs them the wrong way, they just go to the next church. Others have the same spirit but find it difficult to hop churches. Instead, they'll lead a campaign to kill the pastor. Why? Because if they switch churches, they lose power. I'm not talking about our churches. Churches in general, right? People that are uh, entrenched well, behind the scenes in the ministry ranks, we call them power brokers in the church. They may not have an official title, but maybe they're big givers. Maybe they're one of the original founders in the church. And they want things to be a certain way. And when they're not that certain way, the pastor's going to hear about it. The elders are going to hear about it. They'll start a division in the church. But they won't leave the church because they don't have any power. Or if they have power, they won't have power over there. Some people leave church because they don't have any power, so what's the difference? I'll just go to another church. But it's all the same brand of hypocrisy. And we ask ourselves, why, why am I at church? Why am I here? Why do I, why do I want to do this? I remember early on in my ministry um, telling my wife, I, I don't want to get to the point where when I get asked to preach to a place, I ask, what's the honorarium? How many people are going to be there? How exposed is my ministry going to be? Is the recording going to go on the website? I just want to ask, what's the intention? What are we doing here? What's the purpose of the event? And, and what do you want me to preach on? I don't know if that's always a practical question to ask. I remember one time I couldn't make it to an inner varsity. They give you like 25 bucks. You know, you drive into the city, you park. Maybe you break even on gas, make a little, whatever. I don't do it for that. I go because, hey, these guys, you know, they need a preacher to come in. They need someone to come in and speak to them. And one time I couldn't do it. And so I jumped on the phone. I called two guys that I knew that could preach. And I knew their schedules were pretty flexible. Both of them asked me, the first thing they asked me, how much? That bothered me. Right, that bothered me. I don't want you to sit here and go, oh, Luke is just going after people in the pew. It's mostly us. We allow these kind of cultures to happen. Pastors allow this stuff. And we become like that. But Jesus just has no tolerance at all for that garbage. He doesn't have any tolerance for it at all. He wants to stamp it out right out of the gate and tell his disciples and tell the crowds, if you're going to join in on this, this is what this is going to be about. This isn't going to be about building big buildings. This isn't going to be about branding ourselves and marketing ourselves and being the awesomest thing that the community has ever seen that everyone's talking about. This isn't about you can come here and because you're failing the workplace, maybe you could just memorize a few scriptures and become prominent in the church uh, culture and raise up and become an elder and you can tell people what to do. And that's not, This has nothing to do with that stuff. This is about something else. 
And we're always going to have a temptation to make it about the checklists, to make it about the church building and the church services. We're always going to be tempted to make it about religion and uh, the do's and the don'ts. And the reason why it's tricky is because those things do matter. Those things do matter. But they're not the main thing. And so the problem with the Pharisees is they use this stuff to make themselves prominent. Jesus said, your problem, the, the thing that sums all of this up is verse 11. The greatest among you will be your servant, but you guys don't get it. You guys want to be great. You don't want to be servants. You want to be prominent. You want to be famous. You want people to laud you, praise you, know your name. You want, to be, you want, you want your billboard on every corner. You want people to, to come to this temple because Rabbi so-and-so is here. The churches are doing this more and more where the church identity is built around the pastor. And if the pastor leaves, the church has, a, has to struggle with their identity because the identity of the church is this famous pastor. Boy, I could really go down that road. I don't know what that's like, the temptation, if you've got, you know, Thousands upon thousands of people come to your church. I don't know what that temptation is like. But I know the things that lurk in my heart. I think lurks in all of us, if we're not careful, is this little bent that we have to turn religion into something that serves us. A little pet thing, a little culture thing that we like to do, and we like to keep it and pet it and store it and build it up so that it makes us feel comfortable and makes us prominent and we lose sight of mission and we lose sight of sacrifice and we lose sight of the greatness of being small. I love how he concludes this. Verse 37, at the end of this chapter, I love this. I mean, he's, he is seething with judgment in wrath, he's angry about this, right? He's calling them vipers, and he just flipped their tables a few paragraphs ago, kicked them all out of their own temple. He's beating them in arguments and debates, and they're trying to kill him, and he calls them hypocrites and blind guides and vipers. Then he says, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered you like children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. He's saying, I'm, I'm like a hen that's trying to gather the chicks together. I love you like children. The vipers and the hypocrites, he loves them like children. And he wants to gather them together under his wings and protect them and save them, but they don't want it. And it breaks his heart. Words are dripping with it as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not see your house is left to you desolate for I tell you you will not see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the children were shouting in the temple. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David. 
That's what the people were shouting on the road when they were throwing down the palm branches in front of him to walk on. They were proclaiming him as king when they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's from Psalm 118. And what, they, what was attached to that phrase was Hosanna, which means save us. And so Jesus is saying, <laughs> you're, you're, this whole place, this whole temple, everything that you've built here, all this religion is going to be laid desolate. Ends up happening in AD 70, historically. It's going to be desolate, and you won't see me again until you admit that you need salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In that psalm, that person who comes in the name of the Lord is coming to save. That's why they shout, Hosanna! He's here to save us. That's what they reject. They don't reject Jesus because he's a better teacher than them. They would have welcomed that. Clarify issues for them. That would have been great. Another rabbi, they would have claimed, oh, he's from this section. Oh, I saw, I got him first. That would have been all awesome. It wasn't just they were jealous of his teaching. It's that Jesus came teaching that you guys are defunct. You guys are in debt and you're going to hell and you need me to save you. And they're going, what? I keep the law. I tithe mint and cumin and paprika. He's saying, guys, you you miss it because you miss me. The reason why hypocrisy is a temptation is because we have a temptation to do things ourselves. We have a temptation, a desire to perform because performance makes me great. Performance makes me puffed up. This is what I do. These are the things that I know. And what Jesus is saying is all of that stuff that you do and all of those things that you know don't amount to anything without me. You need me to save you. You need me to live a perfect life and worship the Father perfectly because you can't do it. And what the Pharisees have missed is they think they've done it. They're the elder son in the parable of the prodigal son. I know we're jumping over Luke. But you remember why Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son? He didn't tell it so that we can all necessarily identify with the younger son who returns and is repentant. That's what he wants us to do. But he wants us to realize that too often we are the elder son. And the reason why he told that parable was because there was a bunch of people like this around him going, how come you hang out with these people that, that don't tithe, that don't go to the temple, they are uh, promiscuous, they're dirty, they're tax collectors? How can you possibly spend time with them? And he's like, those are, the, those are the sons that are coming home. And you know what you guys are? You guys are the elder son who don't want any part of the party because you feel like that person was out there doing all that bad stuff and I've been here, I've been a good boy, I've been doing all this stuff, I've been taking care of the farm, I've been doing everything right. I should be prominent in the house. Party should be thrown for me. And the father says, you don't get it. Everything I have is already yours. You didn't earn it. You don't earn sonship. You're my son because it's unconditional. The Pharisees are here tithing, trying to figure out the differences between swearing on an altar, swearing the thing that's on the altar. They're straining out gnats. They're missing camels. They're blind. They're, they're whitewashed tombs. Their inside is dirty. Their outside is pristine. They pray really long prayers. They wear really long robes. They wear really big phylacteries. And Jesus is saying, 
what you need to recognize is that you need me to save you. When you recognize that, then hypocrisy dies. See, you're not a hypocrite if you tell people that you're saved by grace. You're a hypocrite if you tell people, hey, I cleaned up my life. I got everything together. And then God accepted me. Well, now you're a hypocrite because you're a liar. Nobody can clean themselves up perfectly and circumvent the need for Jesus on the cross. But if you tell people, hey, I'm messed up, you're messed up. We all have our issues. But God nailed it to the cross in his son, Jesus Christ. And so I'm saved, not because I'm good, but because he's perfectly good. That's the gospel. And for any Christian to avoid hypocrisy in the church, in the home, you want your kids to see a transparent dad, a transparent mom. It's not that you live a perfect life and you never mess up. It's when you mess up, you know how to say sorry. It's that when the Spirit convicts you, you surrender yourself to that because you're not trying to convince yourself, no, I'm perfect, I'm too good to say sorry, I'm too good to repent. No, 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 I'm going to make excuses and try to patch it up like putting plaster on a tomb. But a person goes, you know what, kid, come here, sit down. I love you, I messed up. I'm not a perfect dad. Thank God that you and I both have a perfect father to keep us in check and to cleanse us and purify us because of what his son did for us. That's transparency. That's authentic Christianity, not perfection, but recognizing our need. So we can sing Hosanna, we can praise Jesus for being the one who's come to save us and love that. And all the religious things that we do, we do because we're so enraptured by the Savior rather than doing all these little things to make ourselves prominent and make Jesus small and needless in our lives. We embrace the grace that He offers us in Jesus Christ. That's the antidote to hypocrisy. I want to ask the worship team to come up. And as we close in this song... Um, you know, I, I want to let you all know that, um, you know, if I was going through topics of something to preach, I wouldn't have picked that. I wouldn't have picked that because I don't feel like CFC is a church riddled with that problem. But God in his grace puts passages there and forces us to look at them, unpack them. And even the things that we're good at, it's good to keep that in check recognize those things that can creep up inside of us so we can stamp them out. We need God's grace to do that. Amen? All right, let's, uh, if you're able to stand, please join us. Then we're gonna